This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Peter Guthridge. I'm a journalist and author. And I'm so pleased to, be, uh, invite, to have been invited to host this event with uh, Omid J- uh, Jalili, who you know as a comic. You know him as a, a film actor and a, uh, a wonderful uh, cameo film actor. But he's written this wonderful book called Hopeful, which is a, uh, an autobiography about his early years. Uh, it, it, uh, it goes up to quite a late stage in his acting career, but there's a lot more to be told later. Um, in a minute, he's going to come on. We're going to have a chat about this book and his career. Uh, then you're going to have a chance to ask him questions, and then he's going to be signing copies of the book in the bookshop afterwards. Please welcome Omid Jalili. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow. Testing, one, two. Hello, everyone well? <laughs> I can see Middle England and Middle Scotland is out in uh, comfortable, comfortable shoes and light rain wear. <laughs> <laughs> the light rain was not enough. No, exactly. <laughs> I was just testing. Can you, everyone hear me? Everyone good? Okay. Good. Um, I know Katie Price has written three autobiographies at a very early age, <laughs> but you're not quite old enough yet to write an autobiography. Why did you decide to, to write this now? Um, good question. Um, if you're lucky to be asked, that's, I was very honoured to be asked to write one. I also felt that um, as a comedian on tour, I'm often away from my family. Uh, if you see, the book is actually dedicated to my, my, three, ch- my three children, uh, Isabella, Louis, and Daniel. And I felt that um, I was away being a stand-up and doing these Hollywood films for a very long time, so I didn't really, sadly, see them grow up as much as I'd wanted. So uh, it, it's kind of my chance for them um, to get to know me, really. And but, so I wanted them to know me. But you're on tour again quite soon, I thought. Yes, from September I'm on tour. So uh, while I'm away, uh, I'll just say, just read the book. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what about the title? Did that come naturally, or did, were there a range of alternative titles you were playing around with? Uh, yeah, there were some. Well, the, 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 the word hopeful came from um, my name, actually. Some of you might know the joke I used to do in my stand-up. That Amid, Amid actually means hope uh, in Farsi. Uh, it's a shame that Jalili means less. That was a little. <laughs> I remember that joke. They all remember that joke. Still works. <laughs> and um, and I thought that it would be. Um, I, I was very moved by um, a quote. By it's not not, not a very well known quote by uh, Winston Churchill, which said that, uh, that says that success is failure after failure, with no loss of enthusiasm, uh, which is a lovely quote. And I think is it, it very much uh, encapsulates my life as as a comic who's been coming to Edinburgh because. You see people flyering, and they do shows on the free fringe, and they, they never get noticed, but they, they always remain hopeful. Um, and, they, they, and myself, my life was full of failures, but I always remained hopeful. And I think that um, there are two aspects to being hopeful. One is people who think people are hopeful all the time, uh, they might have their head in the clouds because they're not really um, acknowledging pain and suffering, which I think is very important. Uh, but, if you, but those who just acknowledge the pain and suffering without hope well, the only um, option is suicide. So you always need hope. So hope is a very important thing. And I was, always, I was very um, inspired by Tony Benn, who often said that uh, anger is one thing in politics, but after the anger, you still need hope that you can change things. So that's why it's called Hopeful. That's great. In fact, in fact, I thought that was a very good answer. Actually. It was a very good answer, yeah. <laughs> I thought it deserved a round of applause, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> Already crass and hectoring, The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is you use quotes a lot on, in, in the uh, chapter headings. You've yes. got a quote on, on each one. Obviously, that was a conscious decision, but yes. how difficult, how, how much fun was it to kind of choose those quotes? They're mostly from... It's uh, a lot of Rumi. fun. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to choose... Um, because I've, 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 I've been seen as some kind of bridge between East and West, yeah. so I felt um, the first two people I wanted to quote um, was Shakespeare and Rumi. Um, a lot of people never heard of Rumi. Hands up people who've heard of Rumi. Anyone heard of Rumi? Okay, that's less than half. Rumi was a 13th century Persian poet, very much seen as the Shakespeare uh, of the Middle East. And um, it was quite funny, when we gave the first manuscript in my, uh, my editor, Sarah Emsley, said, uh, I I've just Googled Rami. Um, and I've never heard of him, and I don't think anyone else has, so I suggest we drop uh, Rami. And I said, his name is Rumi. And she goes, well, I've Googled him. And I, go I said, who's she Googling? And I Googled Rami, and the only Rami that came up was a, a footballer called Adil Rami, um, <laughs> who was a French footballer of Moroccan heritage who plays for Lille. Uh, and I said, you really think I'd be quoting you? <laughs> this footballer? He goes, yes. I wondered why you were quoting him. <laughs> so I felt it was important to uh, quote Rumi. And, and Rumi is one of the most quoted people in the West as well. Uh, and along with Shakespeare, I thought uh, Winston Churchill, with that kind of pragmatism uh, and, and all his famous quotes about never, never, never give up. And at the same time, Oscar Wilde. Because uh, I, I studied uh, at a university in, in Ireland. And I was always... Uh, I always loved the lyricism and the poetry of the Irish, so I think it's the four different aspects of me which I felt was represented in these four writers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's go back. So you, you're, you're Persian, you're, but yeah. you, you were born here. Your parents came over when? 1958. Right. And your dad had been a photographer, a very successful photographer right. in Iran. What, why did they choose to come over? Uh, they chose to come over to Britain because uh, my mother was a dressmaker and... Um, this is just before the Carnaby Street um, boom. And, she, and for some reason, she was quite flamboyant, my mother. And she said, you want to marry me, take me to London. You know, that was the idea. And he did. He took her to London. And I think the idea was always to stay a few years and then go back. But they loved, they loved Britain. They, they, they really embraced Britain. My mother was uh, uh, making... She was very much influenced by the films of the 1940s and 50s. So she felt London was really the place for, for dressmaking. And my father got a job at the Iranian embassy as a as a liaison officer um, and was also worked as a photographer so they ended up staying and I'm, I'm very grateful that they did because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. And I think you say that your mum could actually make a dress just based on watching Yes, she was films. very talented, yeah. She didn't need a, a, a blueprint or anything. Or yeah, anything. but she didn't quite have the face of Mar Marilyn Monroe but she kept doing things for herself. She was always, she was always dressed in these elaborate uh, uh, dresses that you saw in all these films but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but she just loved, she loved 40s and 50s films. And you, you, you were not, you're not an only child. When did, when did you come along in there? Yes, I was... Um, I think I joked that I've, <clears throat> I've got my brother, who's seven years older, and my sister, Roxana, four years older, and then finally they got it right uh, with, with me. Uh, <laughs> I came in 65, yes. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the youngest child. And where were, you, where were you brought up? I was brought up in... Uh, Hence the rather posh voice. I was brought up in Kensington. Yeah. Uh, interesting, I'm the, I'm the only stand-up comedian working in Britain right now who was raised in central London, because everybody is from a, a regional place or people from the outskirts. But I was raised in the very, very centre uh, of, of London. And I, I think the first show I ever did was called uh, Short Fat Kebab Shop Owner's Son. I don't know if anybody saw that the first or 20 years ago. And the thesis was that I looked like a short, fat kebab shop owner's son, but inside me... There's a tall, thin, 
high-cheekboned English ponce screaming to get out. <laughs> that, was the, that was the thesis of the show. So, hence my posh voice. <laughs> and you, you spoke Farsi at home? Or I spoke you, Farsi yeah. at home. In fact, actually, the first... Uh, I, I talk about it in the book. The first time I went to nursery was a real shock to me because all I spoke was Farsi at home in England. And uh, no one had thought to teach me English. And we didn't even have a TV, so I d didn't even watch Play School or anything like that. So I literally was thrown into a, a nursery school situation where I couldn't speak the language which I'd learned at home. And I was desperately shocked. And that's the f one of the first things I talk about where I was just so... In fact, I was so shocked I vomited and, and got taken home um, because it was such a shock to me. Um, so that was the first kind of culture shock I had. And, and how old were you before you went back to, to the homeland? Uh, then I went to Iran when I was six. Uh, I think my, I went once when I was three, and then uh, my mother, still thinking we'd go back to Iran, took me back when I was six years old. And that's when I had my first vivid memories of Iran. And it's a, such an uh, amazing country. It's seasonal, it's wacky, it's crazy, it's busy. It's, it's a very rich culture. And um, even as a six-year-old, my impressions were was that this was an amazing place where amazing things happen. Always amazing things happen all the time. Uh, for example, they always give you a, a, a confusing gifts was a big part of Iranian culture. I remember a boy hit me once and made me cry. Then he went, went and brought me a snail and everything was fine. You know, <laughs> this is the kind of random world that we lived in. So I, I thought it was a very vibrant culture. And I, and I wanted to show some of that because Iran has this grisly um, reputation for being you know, a, a country with terrible human rights record. And I just wanted the world to see a little bit of the colour and the and the beauty and poetry of Iran as well. Did it make London seem a bit grey, or was London equally vivid for you at that age? Can you remember? Yeah, London was, ve London was very... Um, in, in the 70s growing up, I was very aware of psychedelia. That was a thing. All the TV programmes, like um, when you saw Play School or Magpie, it was, I think the producers were high on drugs, because there was always some kind of psychedelic... Like, watch the Tomorrow People scared the crap out of me, you know? It was, everything was psychedelic, and it, I think it was about people uh, using their imaginations. I used, my mind was always very alive. And I think there was something about the grim 70s that made everyone fantasise a lot and kind of escape into kind of dream world psychedelia. And I've tried to capture that as well from London. Yeah, yeah. You came back from, I think, possibly your first trip from Iran and you could speak Farsi to a, yes. to a degree and your dad was really, yes. uh, was really proud of you. When did you get the hang of English? Was that, did that come fairly quickly? I think um, it was just when, when they saw that I couldn't speak English, then they acquired a television and they kept saying, here, watch television. That was it. They just watched television and learned English. That's what they did. Seriously, that's what they did. So I, I learned English through television. and um, Particular programmes? Um, I, uh, Crown Court. <laughs> <laughs> Crown Court was fantastic. People watch LA Law now. Crown Court was where it was at. Yeah, but you were six. <laughs> I was six. I often used to pretend I was sick because I was always on one at one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I was watching at home. Crown Court was a big show. Uh, Pebble Mill at one. That was something as I got a bit older. That was a big show. Uh, the, big one, the big one I watched in the 80s as I grew up was Just Good Friends. With, do you remember Just Good Friends with Paul Nicholas? Uh, I thought that was wonderful. I was, I was often crying and thinking, God, this is funny. And I was often just, just teary-eyed and, and wanting to talk to people. But no one watched it at the time. It was just me. So, yeah, big TV kid as well. You, you, you say in the book that, that uh, your family was quite um, uh, 
extrovert in some ways in, in terms and, and also quite loud but that could just be because of the way the language is but yeah. you, you made a visit to Edinburgh in 1972 I think yes yes I did um, <clears throat> I don't want to give it away too much but no, one, no, no. The, the epilogue is that um, in fact that's one of the big mistakes uh, in the book I, I came to Edinburgh in 1972 uh, we came to see the tattoo which is always August but in the book I remember it as uh, as October because it was so cold. Uh, <laughs> and, and even the, a copy editor who's there to check the dates, she'd been to Edinburgh when she was a kid, and she'd remembered it as, as November. <laughs> it was that cold. So it was never really... Because uh, I, well, I think it was more October. Um, but we went with the family, and um, we ended up going to Jenner's, um, which was a department store on... You all know Jenner's, and there's a... I think on the fifth floor... Was it the fifth floor, I remember? There was a cafe there, and... Uh, and I think there was, um, I do remember that our family had a big argument and I was so embarrassed because Edinburgh seemed more genteel than, than, than London. So when people just scream a bit louder than that, I'm just so embarrassed because everyone's quite nice and a bit, a bit of middle class from Morningside. It was all like, oh, big, big, big burly, fat Turkish family, you know. And so I was very embarrassed and I moved away and I saw a little girl who looked quite twink twinkly and I was kind of moving my eyebrows at her and then... Uh, she had a grandmother, and um, I, 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 keep my, my, I thought that was the woman I married. Uh, she's here, An Annabelle's here, and, and basically, she's not quite sure, but she does remember a short, fat, kind of Middle Eastern boy making eyebrows. I said, was it this? And she goes, that kind of rings a bell. So I'm a, kind of, I'm a hopeless romantic. I like to think it was her. She's not quite so sure. But that, so the story pretty much begins and ends uh, in Edinburgh, because Edinburgh is such a a place where I grew creatively and it, it's, it, it means a lot to me to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, is a, there are a lot of stories in this book, so don't worry, you're not going to give yeah, everything away. I won't away. give everything away. Uh, don't worry about that. Um, there is, you made a few trips to Iran. There is one particular trip that I don't know if you feel like reading the little oh, yes. excerpt from what happened to you there when oh, you my were God, with yes. your family. Um, I think you're alluding to the cesspit. Story, I am yes. alluding to the cesspit, yes. yeah. The cesspit... Um, when I was six years old, my, father had, uh, my grandfather had a massive garden, kind of the size of a football pitch, and uh, there was a cesspit near the middle, um, and when, unfortunately, the toilets didn't work, we were all told to do our business on these potties. I don't know, there's no other polite word, because it was a potty, and people would go and drop it in the cesspit, and, of course, I never knew where the cesspit was, because my mother would send my stuff away. And over the winter, the cesspit would grow, and some men were supposed to empty it, and they didn't. And when the snow came, it was uh, parallel to the grass. And uh, my brother and I, when the snow fell, we were playing um, a game of follow my leader's footsteps. And I remember walking along, following, uh, and he went up to the cesspit and then walked away. And as I was following, I could hear my sister from quite far away shouting, you're going in. And I, was, I couldn't hear what she was saying. And um, maybe, can I, can I read you this? Please. Can I use the... Uh, I've always, I can't believe in the book festival I'm here at a lectern. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> so I'm walking in. And I'll take... And here the story continues. Then I fell. I don't know where or how. It didn't hurt. But I was definitely not, definitely not walking anymore. I was in a state of semi-flotation. I don't remember any smell, just a slow sinking feeling. I called out to my brother who turned around as if in slow motion. At first he didn't move. I called out again and he inched closer, 
but I didn't understand why he was peering down at me with an expression of incredulity and disgust. Help me, I said. Still, he didn't move. Even when I pleaded again, I'm sinking. The cold excrement had now reached my neck. I was hoping for a reaction like that. <laughs> Sensing I was going under, I instinctively doggy paddled. I'd had one swimming lesson at school, but I was sinking fast. I managed to get to the side of the pit and put my arm out to my brother, who was, who was still staring at me with a frozen expression of outrage on his face that said, who are you? I don't know you. <laughs> Luckily, he snapped out of it and coming to his senses, he realised his little brother was going to disappear into excrement oblivion. He hastily offered an arm, as willingly and graciously as you possibly can, for another arm, thickly coated in human waste, and yanked me out. If he had acted seconds later, then I, would have no, I have no doubt I would have sunk to the bottom and drowned. I flopped onto the grass like a baby seal, born in brown amniotic fluid. I was covered from chin to toe. My brother was staring at the filth on his own hand and arm while dry retching, possibly from the shock of my near miss with death, as well as the cloying, rancid odour emanating from the pair of us. For a moment we had no words and just gazed at each other, panting. Javid, my brother, came to his senses. You better get inside before it cakes on you. <laughs> my sister had obviously raised the alarm as I walked zombie-like back to the house. A couple of uncles rushed out and looked at me in horror. Chishud! What happened? I fell in the poo pit. Why were you playing in the poo pit? Bloody hell, the kids of today. He actually thought I was as if. My mother, not having been informed of this disaster, came bustling out of the house. We were actually on our way to a, a luncheon party. Uh, we were all dressed up, and my mother, looking glamorous and ready to set off for the party, said, So let's go. Are we ready? Sometimes she really dressed up like a movie star from Hollywood, the Hollywood Golden Age, occasionally a bit too much, and this was one of those occasions. Nigashkon, look at him, said one of her brothers weakly. I stood a moment. <laughs> it took a moment for her to register. I'd seen American TV programs where misfortune befalls a child, and the parents always reacted with deep sympathy. It's okay, Jake. You're with mommy now. <laughs> they would say, and they'd hug and cry together. My mother exploded. <laughs> Father dog, mother dog. She can't have What have you done? Why, man? Oh my God. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Sakine, the, house, the housekeeper, ran ahead, laying down sheets for me to step into the house, up the stairs. I inched forwards gingerly amidst the hysteria and commotion. In the bath, I was amazed at how quickly and volcanically the brown stuff cascaded from my body. My mother held the shower head to my neck and started hosing me down, ripping off my clothes and berating me, her luck, my father, everyone, while stray particles flicked onto her beautiful dress. Lebasam! Lebasam! My clothes, my clothes. She shouted, sobbing between words, She can't stand up! Can be easier to see them! What have I done to deserve this? And, I'm going to puke. I stood ashamed and impassive, waiting for the moment to pass, 
Mungo Jerry's in the summertime, while the weather is fine, came into my mind and drowned my mother shouting for a bit. I noticed a fleck of something on her necklace. I wondered if I should mention it, but decided to keep quiet. <laughs> An hour later, my body was buzzing, and I felt surprisingly invigorated from the sensation of having been scrubbed to within an inch of my life. I kept mute, though, as tensions were running high, and my mother was still fighting back her exasperated tears. We drove to the lunch party in silence. As we got out the car, my brother whispered to my mother, Hanuz Bumide, he still smells. <laughs> To which my mother said, Saket, shut up. <laughs> and probably made a mental note to our hosts in case anyone brought it up that I'd had, I'd had an accident in my trousers on the way there. <laughs> she sighed, Eh Chodaya man, oh God, and then rang the doorbell. This incident indicates some philosophical implications, namely, when you try to clean excrement off somebody else, chances are you'll get some on you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Always good to start with a shit story. I was going to say, you come to a posh literature festival like this yes. and you read that. <laughs> so what was it like at school for you? Did you feel an outsider or was it a, a good school to be at? Um, you, you were at school in Kensington. So I was at school, yes, the Church of England school called St Mary Abbott's, which is on Church Street uh, at the mm. bottom of uh, uh, Church Street near Kensington, opposite Barkers of Kensington, actually. It's yeah. a very posh area. And uh, I think it was, all, um, it was all well and good. I was never really... Um, Never had. It was a very multicultural school, so I never was the victim of any racism uh, or anything like that. And um, I felt it was. Uh, it was only when the Islamic Revolution happened in 1979, when I was a droopy-nosed kid with a bum-fluff moustache, and um, everyone seemed to see these images of Iran of people beating themselves, and there was an Islamic Revolution. It was in the news pretty much like the way Israel and Gaza is at the moment for a bit long, elongated period. Probably longer. It was on the, in the news for about six months, and then I felt. The, the, everything changed. People saw me in a very different way because uh, my family, my family actually not Baha'is. They were uh, so my, my family not Muslims. They were Baha'is, which is a which is a, a, a different faith and uh, is a faith that I was raised with. But it, Muslims um, think the Baha'is are an apostate religion. Yeah. So in Britain, I was very much a, a minority within a minority. Uh, and because my parents had a guest house, even in the Baha'i community, they thought our family was weird. So I was pretty much a minority within a minority within a minority and even in my own family I felt like an alien so that the kind of <laughs> levels of cosmic kind of dislocation was, were huge um, but I, I felt that was the period where Iran was in the news that people people saw me differently and they thought oh okay you're not just a sweet person who can speak a different language you come from an Islamic country and you're a slightly a threat so I became unattractive to girls, I became not that I ever was, but I, but I do I do remember being very um, uh, an unattractive, coming from a part of the world that was unattractive, and I think that's probably what informed my stand-up at the beginning, which is why I think there was a piece in the Scotsman recently about how I used comedy as therapy to deal with this thing of coming from a culture that was not seen as desirable. Yeah, and and usually we think that Iranians are Arabs, yes. and where, whereas they're not, they're, they're Persian. Is, yeah. Was that a problem as well, or did you, was that a, the least of your problems? It was the least of my problems, yeah. to be honest, at the time. But but I, I know that uh, I, after nine eleven, I specifically put on a Middle East, a generic Middle Eastern accent, because I was trying to, I suppose, trying to stand up for the whole of the Middle East. And Iranians said, "Yeah, but you're not Arab." I said, "I know I'm not, but this is a time where we have to all stick together." So. Uh, 
No, Iranian Persian th Arab thing was never a big big issue for me. Yeah, yeah. And when you were growing up, what were you thinking you might want to be? I actually w wanted to be a professor of English literature. That was my that was my thing. I was very taken. Um, I did my A levels. I mean, I, I, was, I sent a tweet recently because if anyone had any trouble with A levels, you have to read this book because I did A levels. I did thirteen A levels. I mean, re all retakes, uh, forty nine papers. And I got the shittiest grades uh, of all time. And I really had this... Well, the first dream was to become an astrophysicist. But then I failed maths O-level, so which, uh, <laughs> that dream was gone. And then I went into the arts. And I really... I, I, I saw myself as a professor of, of English literature, which is probably why you see a lot of literary quotes, because there is this literary ponce in me. That's why I can't believe I'm here. I'm so excited. It's <laughs> uh, magnificent. Uh, but, I, but, I've always, but I was always... Uh, that's what I saw. And I think I fell into stand-up comedy and, uh, and acting by chance because I, I never really liked... Like a lot of academics, I didn't like laughter. I think my, my relationship with laughter, uh, as you'll see in the book, I, I saw laughter as a child uh, as a scary thing. You know, when you're a child, you, when you laugh at things, it's like, ha-ha, you laugh at things. So... When people laughed at me, I didn't. There's a big story about mm. a show and tell where everybody laughed at me and they were literally pointing and laughing and I hated laughter. And then as I got older, I started using humour uh, as a self-preservation thing, what, to get out of fights. I think I tried to save a friend of mine getting beaten up. I said, oh, don't, don't hit him, I'll do some Egyptian dancing. I did some Egyptian dancing. Mm. Uh, and then I still got beaten up and I thought, <laughs> you know, humour is always going to get you into trouble. And then as I got older, I, I, unlike a lot of comedians who see laughter as an end in itself, uh, I take the more professor-like look at it that it's basically a, it's a means to an end. It's a, it's a means to connect with an audience. It's a means to connect with points you want to say. So I, I would like to think that now I see humour as a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that, uh, that your mum and dad ran a guest house. Yes. Um, can you say a bit more about that? Because that's, uh, that's part of Persian culture, isn't it? That yeah. You befriend a friend's friend or something. Yeah, it, it, my parents ended up having... Their home became a guest house, um, but it came out of a, uh, a kind of tradition where if you go abroad, you never stay in hotels. You just stay with friends, friends of friends, and you, you pay a little something towards the expenses. And I think this business grew uh, for medical, people coming over for medical assistance, uh, you know, private medical care at Harley Street. And my parents were multitaskers. They were kind of uh, nurses, they were administrators, and in my father's case, and they were entertainers as well because the placebo effect with ill people, you try and keep them entertained and keep them happy. And I always, the first time I was introduced to the concept of stand-up comedy was my father telling jokes uh, over breakfast because the word eggs in Farsi means bollocks. Um, <laughs> and so you can all, it also means testicles. So he uh, would often ask, would you like your eggs fried, scrambled or fondled? Uh, that, was, uh, that was the big first joke uh, I heard. And it used to make people laugh and, um, and it would make them feel better. So the house was this happy guest house where it was lots of people, lots of food and it, it was very much a home from home a lot of sick Iranians who uh, would come and would hopefully get better quicker. That was the idea. And you, you acted as a translator for them? <laughs> yes, I was a translator. In fact, I'm, I'm actually very, very upset that um, I could have had a, uh, had a burgeoning career as a translator that was never really um, exploited. You know, as a child, I had, a, I had a weird kind of gravitas. You know, I used to go for these translated, medical translations. I used to wear a tie and a suit and always put my hands behind my back. And... Um, 
I knew Persian words for things like plural effusions and cardiac arrest. And, <laughs> I knew all these words. And, um, uh, but I didn't know some basic things. Like uh, Once my father said, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, my father said, go to Brompton Hospital. There's a kidney patient, just had his kidney operated on. Uh, the doctor's coming at 10. Just translate a couple of questions, translate. And then when the doctor goes, sit with him and, you know, just entertain him a while. And in my head, I thought it meant tell him some jokes. Uh, when, in fact, my dad said, just sit with him. Don't just scarper. Sit with him a couple of minutes. So the doctor came and was surprised at my age. And he said, uh, how old are you? I said, 10. He goes, oh, very good. Uh, can you ask the patient if he slept well? I said, khub khabirini is bad. I said, yes, he did. Can you ask the patient if he got thirsty in the middle of the night? I said, Yes, I said, a little bit. He goes, can you ask the patient if he had trouble breaking wind? And I said, excuse me? And he, <laughs> he said, you know, wind. And I, I genuinely didn't know. I said, you mean like the wind outside? He goes, no, no, wind. You know, wind. And I said, uh, and my father said, if you don't understand, ask again. I said, I, I, I said sorry, I, I'm not clear what you mean. He goes, you know, wind. Very, a doctor from Harley Street, because you know, wind when you've eaten a lot. And he just kind of did a little squat. He goes, you know, you do one of those. <laughs> and I said, oh, oh, you mean farting? And he said, yes, I, I suppose so. And I said, and making up for my um, lack of knowledge, I translated it uh, as, do you fart like a hurricane? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> which, which the bloke said yes, and I said yeah, <clears throat> quids in. And, and then when the doctor left, um, the worst thing for a kidney uh, patient is to laugh. So he was trying not to laugh, and so I sat with him, and I and I started doing my eyebrows for him. And, and he, he said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Can I tell you a joke?" And he went, "No." Um, and I, I, I launched into this Persian joke about a gay chicken from a, in a part of Iran called Kazvin. And he started laughing because the, the thought of a 10-year-old telling a joke about a gay chicken was too much for him. So I told the joke. It was actually a very funny joke. And then he started laughing and he literally split his sides. And, and he started shouting in Farsi, begin better, which means tell him. And I started trying to say, he says, get rid of him. And I didn't know he was talking about me. <laughs> get rid of him. He oh, me. And they threw me out. And the curtains came and the patient very nearly died. And I was forbidden from translating ever again after that. But I think it was a, it was a burgeoning career that was cut short um, by a doctor talking about farting, unfortunately. So, so yeah, but it was a shame because I, I had mental dexterity. It was a real shame. Uh, clearly, clearly. Uh, but you ended up, when you were trying to get these A-levels and, and thinking about being an astrophysicist, you ended up in California. How did that come about yes. and what happened there? I wanted to go to California because uh, in the old days, probably people don't remember this, but you could actually convert to uh, an American university system just after O-levels, pre-GCSEs. And uh, I thought with O-levels, I can get into UCLA. Uh, there was a conversion course for about three months you could do, and then you could do it. And uh, I was just waiting for my exam results, and I stayed with my my grandfather, who wasn't it, there was such little communication those days. I went to stay with him thinking I was going to go to university, and he kept thinking, when are you going home? I <laughs> didn't understand why I was still hanging around. There was no communication between my mother. And whereabouts in California were you? And Orange County. And, uh, and unfortunately, I, I failed my maths O-level, and I was told to leave. My mother said, come back. And I remember my grandfather getting very excited and giving me 50 quid to make sure <laughs> I left. <laughs> Uh, and, um, and then I came back and I started doing uh, A-level retakes. And, uh, and that is, um, I, I, I think you just have to read it. It's, it's probably, uh, the A-level retakes were so extraordinary where I even got, um, the first year I got three Fs. 
uh, and I was, unfortunately, I did, I did A-levels in one year, and I got FFF, English, French, and Economics. And I was so disturbed, because I really thought there was an A or a B, and, and in those days, you could send 20 pounds per A-level to get it remarked. And um, they came back and said, French was correct, F. Um, the English was correct, F. Um, the economics F was actually downgraded to an unclassified. Uh, <laughs> so I got my 20 pounds back, which is uh, ironic with economics. <laughs> I was quite happy with that. So then, then what started a, a, a three-year um, attempt to get into university. And then the actual way I got into university was uh, needed a bit of skullduggery. Um, and I've only just... I'm able to talk about it now because for 30 years I've kept it quiet, but I basically... Uh, lied my way uh, into university. I, I was so disturbed by my last uh, grade of English, which I got five, five times. I, got, I, I failed it once and I got four E's, always maintaining a personal best, which was great. And uh, I was so desperate that when I got the certificate, um, with remarkable accuracy and dexterity, I changed the E into a B. Uh, I was very good at drawing bums uh, when I was a child. So by drawing a little bum, you could turn an E into a B, and uh, it went into the clearing system. And uh, remarkably, I ended up at a university <laughs> where, where I'd had E's, but they'd put B's down um, in, the, in the printout. So by, by, by a miracle, I somehow got in. And I, and I ended up at a university which out of 54 universities was ranked number 73. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the University of Ulster in, in, at Coleraine in Northern Ireland, which was then a remarkable three years there. So you went to Ulster during the Troubles, presumably? Yes, it was. It was, um, it was actually the height of the Troubles. I was there 85 to 88, and uh, very nearly got killed by paramilitaries as well. Um, just there was a misunderstanding. And um, this is Port Stewart, which is a very, very uh, Protestant area. And I kept getting called Seamus, uh, which is a Catholic um, name uh, for people who were quite dark. So I was quite dark, so I assumed... I was a Fenian, that was the word. In fact, my nickname was Fenian Turk. Uh, that was my nickname. And, um, and I remember befriending one of these people, because I, I, I'd befriended a Catholic guy there. Um, can I do this? What, are there any Northern Irish people here? I hope this doesn't upset anyone. Anyone from Northern Ireland here? Okay. <laughs> right, let's, can I go ahead? This is one guy, I'm not joking, he's, he's saying, Arid, what about E, eh? What about E? And he was always looking for a job because his name was Jim. He goes, I'm looking for a job. And he just went to the BBC Belfast. He goes, I said, what were you doing? He goes, I'm looking for a job at the BBC. Because what job were you going for? He goes, as an announcer. <laughs> as a what? He goes, as an announcer. I said, what do you mean, like reading the news? He went, aye. I said, did you get the job? He went, no. <laughs> I said, why is that? He goes, it's because I'm a Catholic. <laughs> Which I thought really... <laughs> it really summed up the place. <laughs> I didn't realise there was that much prejudice. <laughs> My last question before I get questions from the audience yes. about your, the rest of your career, because obviously I've focused on, on these, these early years. How did you get from there to doing to, to your first public performances? Um, I think it was... Um, I went to university and I was, I was very much encouraged there. And I think that's what happens. You get encouraged to do... I think in life, you, you always go with where you're encouraged. You know, Marcel Proust said you always end up doing the thing you're second best at. And I think everyone owes it to themselves to try as many different things. So I did try. I tried chauffeuring. I, I tried translating. And I think I'd, I'd even tried acting. I think that I wanted to be an actor. 
And I kind of fell into stand-up comedy because my wife said, Annabelle said to me, you should try stand-up comedy. And she took me to the comedy store and I thought there's no way I could do this. It's exactly 20 years ago. And, um, and that's why, and I, I think I've just, it's by accident I've become a comedian because I never, I never intended to be one. And, um, and I think that's how it all started. I think when you, if, in life you need your friends, you need your family, and if you don't have any of those, then a life in show business is for you. And I think that's what's happened to me. <laughs> I've fallen into show business. And I think it's been, um, I've kind of gone into show business kicking and screaming. But I think, you know, it may be the best thing. I, I, I don't know. They say you end up doing the thing you're second best at. It might be the second best thing. I'm still doing different things. But I think that was it. It was really encouragement. I was encouraged to do this. Okay, thank you for your patience with me. I've left thank the questions about your career to come from the audience. If you've got a question, stick your hand in the air and wait for the microphone. On the front row here. Hi there. I'm wondering where you learned your dance skills. <laughs> <laughs> the dance skills. Um, interestingly enough, I, uh, people won't believe this, but I was a, a disco dancing champion. LAUGHTER uh, Yes, uh, well, at school I, I, won, a, I won a funny walk uh, competition and that was when someone said you should do physical stuff. And then when I was 15, uh, I had the, you'll you read about in the book, I was, um, I was in a play and I was asked to do lots of dancing in the play. And does everyone remembers Not Nine O'Clock News with Griffiths Jones and Mel Smith. And remarkably, Mel Smith came to a school play. I think he might have had uh, a cousin or something, at the, a nephew at the school. And he came and he said to me, you're really funny. You should do all the physical stuff you do is very funny. And it was him who really encouraged it. So I think that as I started doing comedy, when I used to watch guys in jeans and T-shirts with a, holding a glass of beer, I remember thinking, they should dance a bit or sing. <laughs> and no one did. So um, I think one night I just started shimmying and the comedy store and people started laughing. And, uh, and then the dance came out of that. But I'd always, I always knew how to dance because I'd been... A disco dancing champion, so uh, <laughs> that's where it came from. Thank you. Another question? The doors are locked. You're not going anywhere. Yeah? <laughs> Third row. If being a stand-up comic is your, the second best thing you could do, what is, was, would be the best? Bricklaying. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never tried that. I did actually, I worked as a, a labourer when I was 15 one summer, and they said I was the best bricklayer they'd ever seen. Okay. I think that answers your question. <laughs> On the second row here. Uh, now you've got this book under your belt, do you feel any more confident about your long-term ambition of becoming a professor of English literature? Ah, That's a very good you. question. You know, um, we're, 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 we're playing around with the idea because I never got more than an E in English A-level. And, and I honestly believe that I wasn't thick, I just had bad teaching. So as a publicity stunt, I'm going to take the English A-level um, again uh, during the January retakes. And um, if I do, I'll read the books and I'll do the exam and we'll publicise it in the Times and we'll, we will publish the result and see what happens. And if I get an A then I will go into teaching English literature, for sure. <laughs> because I think that, because in the book you'll see that, in every book there's a mentor figure. And for me, my mentor figure was a, a Middle Eastern professor called Sahel Bushri, who's actually a professor of English literature at Oxford and the, uh, uh, I think the University of uh, Beirut, American University of Beirut. And, um, and I have to say, he's the one who encouraged me, because he's, I said that 
you're such a great lecturer. What is it that makes your lectures so great? He goes, I love the theatre. I always bring the theatre. He was the only lecturer who brought the theatre into his lectures. He was always voted the best um, lecturer. And I know that I think the lecturers who are the most animated and can get their points across with clarity and sometimes with humour, they're the ones who can, are the best educators. So I think if the comedy career is finished, I'll just be a really entertaining teacher. Another <laughs> <laughs> question? Uh, what did your parents and uh, siblings think about your career in comedy? What did my parents and siblings think of my stand-up career? Um, my, my father came to, to the first stand-up comedy show he ever saw me was in 2002. He travelled all the way from London to Edinburgh and he saw what, uh, what was called an extra show they put on there because my run had sold out and they put me at the Queen's Hall and uh, he sat there and I remember every time there was a laugh he just kept turning around. Like that. <laughs> As if to say, you think this shit is funny? <laughs> and he was so shocked, and he, he didn't understand any of it. And um, all he, he wrote down was notes. And I thought, maybe he'll give me some comedy tips, because he's quite a funny bloke. And all his notes were figures, because there are a thousand people here. All, they've all spent 12 pounds. <laughs> I calculate, you're profiting about five grand. Can I have 500 quid? <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so he was just calculating financially, and that was, that was the turning point for him. He just thought, my goodness, there's money to be had, because he just thought I was telling jokes, and he was saying, well, anyone, anyone, I can tell a joke. You know, in fact, my, one, of my, one of the jokes I used in my stand-up was one of my dad's jokes. I don't know if anyone saw me on Live at the Apollo. My dad told me this joke. And he just said it, and I thought it was a really funny joke, about um, a shipwreck. Did anyone hear that joke? There's a shipwreck, and there's a lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with an Arab, an Indian, and an, Ira- and an Iranian and a shark circles and attacks and eats the Arab, eats the Iranian. Only the Indian is floating by himself, and a shark comes up to the Indian and with a snout knocks him out the way and swims off. And the Indian prays, Oh God, why did you save me? And the shark says, I ate one of you lot last year, and my asshole is still burning. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> That's one of my dad's jokes. He goes, I can do that. Anyone can do that. Why don't I get some money for it, you know? So it was only when he saw it as a financially good thing, that's when he thought it was all right. So. Another question. Another question there. Hi, there's a certain similarity between you and I in that um, when I first went to school in the Western Isles, I was the only person who couldn't speak English. Everybody else spoke Gaelic. Right. Now, the difference is that um, the teachers at that time were all keyed up to teach people how to speak and write in English. Yes. I wonder if you could think about a comment on how would it be if somebody had gone like me or you, in fact, an English speaker, to Persia? So let me understand, you, so you, you didn't speak English, you spoke ga- Gaelic, did you say? No, 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 everybody spoke Gaelic except me, I Everyone spoke English. Gaelic. Oh, right, okay, so, and you went to a Gaelic school? Yeah, well, everybody spoke Gaelic, yes. And your so parents, did, your parents taught. never taught you Gaelic? Precisely. Well, your parents are bastards, obviously. <laughs> no, choose better parents, is what I say. But how, how would it be for someone like that to go to Iran? Yes, um... So are you, are you asking me if... If, uh, if an English speaker went to If an English speaking went to... Well, I, I would say preparation is everything. I, I know I lived in... Part of the book is I, I lived in the former Czechoslovakia 
for five years. I was doing experimental. I, I, amazingly, um, the Václav Havel's people had heard that I was there. They'd asked me to stay to form a kind of cultural exchange with Britain. And, uh, and I remember learning Slovak. There was the Czech, the Czech, there are two languages, the Czech and Slovak, because I was based in Bratislava. I think preparation is everything. In life, if you prepare well, read some books and, 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 and try, just try and talk. I, I know that I just talked all the time, and, and I think that's a, that's a great way to learn. Just keep talking. But learn a bit as well. But your parents are twats, basically. <laughs> <laughs> In the book, you also said that falling is good. Falling is good. I think, you know, making mistakes is a, is a, is a big... People, everyone's very afraid of making mistakes. Um, I, don't, I know a lot of people don't like football, but Gary Lineker, uh, everyone know Gary Lineker who presents this thing? He used to play for Barcelona, and... Um, he was very English, and every time he missed, they said, why do you, you keep making body language? He kept going, ooh, like that, ooh. Because I'm trying to show the crowd that I feel sorry that I've missed. And they said, no, the crowd in Spain see negative body language. So every time he did that, the players would pull his hands down and say, it's good to make mistakes, because then, you, then you'll know how to score. So I think part of what the book is saying is never be afraid to make mistakes. Falling is good. That's why I did that show... Uh, Splash. Splash. I don't know if anyone's seen that ridiculous uh, ITV1 show, Splash. It was a diving show. Uh, and I dived, and, and, and after my dive, um, they repaired the pool. And, uh, <laughs> in fact, they were supposed to call the next series <coughs> Tsunami. Yeah, that was, that was, that was a good call. But actually, um, you learn that by falling, actually you learn. You, by hurting, when you, when you get a dive wrong, it hurts. And you learn by reducing the pain every time. So it's always it's good to fall. It's good to make mistakes. And were you nervous at all when you because you jumped from quite a high? I shat there. myself. <laughs> it's one of the most scary uh, things you could ever do. I mean, there's. I would rather have done a parachute jump because at least a parachute jump, you know, if you do it right, it's it's a relatively soft landing. But here, you you hit the water at about forty miles an hour, and when you you're taught to put your hands like that, which sometimes you forget. And it's supposed to be over your head. Sometimes I'd hit the water looking at the water, so I'd still <laughs> get the impact. And it, it's like 10 people going really hard. So, uh, so you learn through the pain. So, uh, but once you do it, and part of my new stand-up show is about is when you get older, you're always looking to think outside the box, do things to give you more courage. That thing which I did flying through the air, age 47, looking like a, like a fat turkey, I think, uh, Joe Brand called me, it really gave me courage. It really, it really was a game changer. In the same way, when people in their 40s are looking for something to give them courage, that definitely... If, if, you, if, if you feel a bit shy, and if you feel a little bit like you want to live outside the box, do a 10-metre dive, because it totally changes your life, I have to say. <laughs> Another question. Over there. Sorry. Oh, no, we haven't gone. OK, we'll come back to you in a minute, yeah. I was just wondering if you've ever performed in Iran. No, but I'd be very funny, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> um, I haven't. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that one day Iran will, uh, will open up, but I'm hoping. I'm ho I've been asked to perform there. They said when, the, when there's a regime change, possibly, I, I, I would love to perform. They're aware of me, apparently. There's, there's a lot of YouTube hits are from Iranians, but I would love to. And I'm actually preparing in, in the same way. I, I spoke to uh, Eddie Izzard, who does... Uh, performances in, in French. He's, he's doing one in German now and Spanish. He's also doing one in Arabic because a lot of people don't know Eddie Izzard was born in Yemen. So he wants to go back to Yemen and do something. And he, he said to me, you should definitely do one in the Farsi language. So 
little five-minute set I'm working on at the moment. So hopefully 2016 or 17, I'll, I, I will, I hope. Good question. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm amazed, having seen you in stand-up, how you can go from one subject to another, which seem totally unconnected, and you never forget where you are. Do you ever forget, and, and how do you prepare for... Do, how do you memorise things? Yes, well, if you see me jumping from subject to subject, that means I haven't found a link. Uh, that's probably... Uh, that's probably very bad stand-up, you know, you've seen. How do you prepare? I think most comics have a, a set list they have, and when you're trying out a new show... I mean, one, I mean, I probably shouldn't give it away in magicians' things, but we often have a little set list written down on a monitor, so you can't see it. So you often see the bad ones always looking down like that. Um, so we have, we have an idea of what we want to say. So, yeah, but it takes a while. I hope you saw me on a good night. If, if you saw me jumping, that, that means I was still trying stuff out. So, <laughs> thank you. Another question? Is that it? No, let me ask you one then. We haven't talked about your acting. You're just yet. filling in. You're filling in. If no, not at all. You bastards! It was going so well. I was holding myself back earlier to give them time. I got loads more questions for you because we haven't talked about your acting at all. You've, yes. done, you've been in a massive range of, uh, of of movies, and I believe you became best buddies with Russell Crowe in Gladiator, sort of. Yes, um, Gladiator was uh, an amazing experience. Everyone seen the film Gladiator? So you've seen it. There was. Uh, I, I was very scared of um, Oliver Reed. Um, Oliver Reed had a real... Uh, I mean, he was... Uh, it was such a shame that he passed away. <coughs> I was very, very fortunate to have three days with Oliver Reed because my scenes are with him. And, uh, and I have to... Can I, can I tell uh, him a little story? That, yeah. There's a story that... I'll give you the live version, but the written version is a bit more detailed. Um, the, the, there's a chapter called Inside the Ethnic Bit Part Actor Studio, um, <laughs> which gives you uh, <laughs> an insight into being an ethnic bit part actor and I've, I've, did, I've done lots of Arab scumbag roles and I often say it but the second Azerbaijani oil pipe attendant I did in the Bond film was a major departure in my career um, <laughs> but if you do these films and, and the crew plays a, a trick on you that means they like you and uh, they played a big trick on me because they knew I was scared of Oliver Reed there's a scene um, where he grabs my nether regions and says you sold me queer giraffes I'm sure some of you have seen this scene he grabs me, and, and um, the director said, you don't mind, he's going to grab you there. And, and, and Oliver Reed said, uh, he goes, do you mind if I go under your tunic? And, um, <laughs> just to make it more realistic. And I said, of course. He said to me, are you a method actor? Which means, you know, do you live in the moment? I went, yes, I wasn't. I said, yes. And, uh, and I'm very glad that I wore sturdy underwear because his hands were cupping my, my balls. I have to say, my balls, he was cupping my balls. And he held them, and we did, a re we did a rehearsal. You sold me queer giraffes, and I go, ooh, like that, and there's a bit of the eye. And they go, and, and what happens is when they say, cut, you have a little cup of tea, they fix your makeup, and then you go, action again. So I went, action, you sold me queer giraffes, you grabbed it, cut. And then he never let go of my, <laughs> of my balls. He just carried on holding them, and I thought that was part of his process, because he was still muttering his lines. And um, I just stood there, like that, and... Uh, <laughs> A minute later, in action, you sold me queer giraffes, cut. And, and he continued to hold my ball. So I thought, you know, he's Oliver Reed. I don't want to ruin his process. So I started making conversation. I said, uh, are you enjoying the Berber Palace Hotel? He went, yes. I said, what do you think of the food? He went, it's all right. And then I, then I was literally moving my balls from left to right with his hands like that. Just moving them around. And... Um, I had no idea it was a wind-up. They did this for five takes. <laughs> and 
He said, you do know, you do know it's a wind-up, don't you? And, uh, <laughs> and the thing was, he got a posthumous Oscar. Uh, the film won Best Oscar. What did I get? Hepatitis C from his fingernails. <laughs> That's the only thing I got. So, um, but there's a better version of that story in the book. There so, is. Uh, and better. then I think there's a climax. I can't say it, but there's... Uh, one of the most extraordinary things in film history uh, happened on that film which became an Oscar-winning film. And I'll just tell you the bit, bit of the background of it was that when I arrived a month into filming, there was a lot of tension. Um, I didn't know that the director, Ridley Scott, was not getting on with uh, Russell Crowe. They couldn't fire him because the rush is going back to DreamWorks and Steven Spielberg, the producer, thought that he was great. They couldn't get rid of him. And they had asked me to befriend Russell Crowe to save... The, the, the social atmosphere of the film. I know this sounds far-fetched, and you have to... I won't say the story, but they just said... I said they, they, he likes British comedians. I think if you befriend Russell, uh, then you can bring him in. He lives far away in a house. If you can befriend him, then things might get better. And actually, what happened was quite the opposite uh, happened. Um, and the story was so funny that when I left, um, the, the, the crew did come together, and then the film. I basically was the reason why that film got an Oscar. That, that's the basic thing. You have to read it for yourselves. And I'm not joking. I am not joking. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's quite an involved story. You've, re you've read, I've it. read it. There's some great, there's some really great uh, movie stories in here. Uh, maybe we can kind of finish by you just maybe sharing that Robert Redford joke or jokes in fact story, yes yeah the, in the spy you did the spy game spy with brad game pitt with him, yeah. and, uh, and redford oh, by the way these are not just um stories I, I i think it's a bit crass if you talk about the stars that's why i've only kept a couple of film stories in there um but only to to highlight a particular lesson yes like exactly. I, I i felt that when you come into these films as a, as a bit part actor um you have to not be demanding just keep your head down do your work and I learned a lot from Robert Redford because the really classy actors are people that always give you time. There's, there, there's some, there was something president... Whenever Robert Redford walked into a room, you literally stood up. Everybody stood up. <laughs> we all did that. And I understand now that the Democratic Party, um, when, the, the, when Bill Clinton became president, they showed him uh, VHS videos of Robert Redford to, be, to learn to be presidential because he had blonde hair. And... Um, and I just, the, there's a little story where I think you should never be, never try and be funny with the really evolved. Like those people who are film stars, the really evolved ones, they're not just film stars for nothing. They have a, a spirit and they have a personality which is genuinely evolved. And I tried to be funny with him. Um, and when I was introduced to him, they, they said, Robert, this is Omid playing Dumay. And I thought I'd be funny. I said, I said, Mr. Redford, may I say, you are the best thing in Hawaii 5.0. It's my favorite show. Da, 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 da. You are magnificent. And he looked at me and he said, thanks. He goes, you were great in Dr. Zhivago, but you've let yourself go. So, <laughs> 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 never be funny with those guys. But then, in fact, you also met Omar Sharif, who had a comment I for you. I met Omar Sharif, who hated me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's because I made a joke he didn't like, uh, which was... Uh, he goes, when I eat, I eat like a bird. This is why I am thin. This is why I am Omar Sharif. And you will always be uh, Omid Jalili. You will always be a sphere. He kept calling me, you are a sphere. <laughs> and I said to him, whenever you walk into a snooker hall, Omar, they'll start choking your head. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't get it. I thought it was a good joke. <laughs> 
Was it was it um, therapeutic writing this? Was it was it tough going? Yes, actually? I have to say, um, it was the most fun I've ever had, and you know it, it is an honour to be asked to write one. And, and the, genuinely, the process, although it was rushed, there was a misunderstanding with the timing, so it's pretty much written while I was on tour. I stayed up till four o'clock in the morning every night for six weeks. So it's a little bit rushed, but I still think it was the most. Uh, as anyone knows who's a writer, it is the most therapeutic, the most. I suppose it's, it's food for the soul. And for me, anyway, I have to say, I really enjoyed writing it. And, and a bit like a Turner. I read somewhere that the, the landscape painter Turner, he never really, um, whenever he did these amazing landscape paintings, he never, it was never one place. He took a dog from somewhere. He took uh, a gate or a patch of grass from somewhere else. And together, it looked like one wonderful, authentic painting. So although I've taken everything you know, every story is true, and every every story is, is is something that's from the heart, and it's real. And I hope that it gives a very nice landscape of my soul. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping. So, but it was genuinely the, the most fun I've ever had. It's better than writing a stand-up show. In fact, I hope I, I hope I become like Alexi Sale. Actually, Alexi Sale doesn't do stand-up; he just writes books now. So, yeah, that's what I aspire to be. Well, I think ending on your soul is a fairly yes, good place you. to end. I think we're, we are out of time. Uh, Omi will be signing copies of the book in the bookshop, which is down there, as you know. Uh, thank you all for coming, being such a responsive audience. Please thank for a great hour. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.